0: Good morning everyone, great enthusiasm
1: in the room. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We are delighted today to have one of our own, Rob Green, delivering today's Medical Grand Rounds. There are no conflicts of interest uh, related to this presentation. I'm going to ask Bob McClellan to come up and introduce Rob. Bob McCone is our Section Chief of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. He's an Associate Professor of Medicine, of Community and Family Medicine, and in TDI. He is also the Director of our Wellness Program and of DH Wellness Plus, which is the uh, entity that organizes our health care for our employees. He has many, many other roles here, but that's enough for now. Bob, come tell us about Rob. <laughs>
0: Thanks, uh, Rich, and I'm glad to see the uh, audience so so full and robust this morning. So I'm uh, very pleased to introduce you uh, to uh, Rob Green. For those of you who have not met him, uh, Dr. Green is the executive vice president and chief of our population health and uh, chief population health uh, management officer for Dartmouth Hitchcock, and is also on the faculty of TDI. Uh, he's our principal operational uh, leader guiding DH in its population health management strategies and oversees um, our ACO work across DH, uh, as well as leading the development and implementation of strategies to succeed under our uh, long-awaited population-based uh, reimbursement strategies and models. He, brings, he also brings his expertise and uh, oversight to our employee health and safety Uh, programming and plays a key role in uh, many other population health initiatives, um, including working with partners in the community. Uh, He began his medical career getting his MD at the University of Pennsylvania, and then went on to Strong Memorial Hospital uh, in Rochester, where he did his internal medicine residency, and then practiced uh, on the front line in Rochester uh, for 18 years as a general internist. Um, Since the early 90s, he's been working on clinical performance measurement, quality improvement programs, and economic issues in medicine in a variety of settings. Immediately prior to coming to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, Dr. Green was the senior vice president of innovation and applied analytics and led the clinical analytics division in United Healthcare. And in that position, he designed and coordinated clinical performance measurement methodology across United Healthcare. He was also responsible for United's patient-centered care model and their patient-centered medical home uh, program. He's well published has served on many national expert panels of organizations such as NCQA, IOM, and RAND. And among other awards, in 2010, he received the Richard L. Doyle Award for Innovation and Leadership in Healthcare. Uh, Well, we're fortunate that he came to our uh, Healthcare Science Delivery Program in 2012, from which he graduated in 2014, met Dartmouth, we met him, and the rest is history.
1: Thank you, Bob, for your kind words, and and Rich as well. It's an honor to be here uh, presenting at Medical Grand Rounds. So uh, today we're going to talk about the overview, why we need the new approach, the system macro levers that we can use to work on population health, as well as our internal organizational methods, and uh, what that will mean for you. So learning objectives and disclosure are basically why, what, and how. And as uh, Rich said, no financial conflicts of interest. So key points. Our patients' needs have changed. But the system and payment methodologies in the rest of the world are not catching up. So to achieve the aim of better care, better health, and better outcomes, we have to change. Population health management, as I mentioned, has both macro levers and internal levers and there's a growing body of evidence that's showing that this is going to uh, that this is working so let's get through some definitions and uh, background Um, first of all just making sure we're all on the same page the IHI triple aim better care better health better outcomes um, from a paper that uh, was published by uh, Berwick and other authors a number of years ago uh, which I highly recommend very readable and interesting And also, just to keep also in mind the IOM-6 aims for medicine, and by now, people get to repeat them often enough, so safe, timely, effective, equitable, efficient, and patient-centered. Although not exactly that order. (laughs) So a couple definitions, um, because people ask about what population health is, population health management is, and how it differentiates. So I did a a hard piece of uh, research. I went to that uh, research engine in the sky and found public health pops right up. Right, so that's the health of populations, but especially in terms of what the government does, and you all know this regulatory things: monitoring, epidemiology, etc. what's population health an academic discipline, and that's related to the health outcome distributions within populations, and especially the actions and conditions that protect populations, disparity issues, et etc. And sometimes populations are geographic, sometimes they are certain group of patients, certain group of people. I'll give you some examples along the way. So now we're getting a little closer. What's population medicine? And this is also uh, by uh, Dr. Kindig. And this is the idea that groups would come together to work in a multi-sectoral fas- fashion to improve the population health. So I tried Googling population health management and nothing really comes up. Okay. So let me give you a working definition. I think of population health management as the active management through systematic quality improvement and process improvement um, activities that advance the AAA. And and the key is that this is the active role. It's not necessarily the academic uh, discipline. And to put it in simplistic terms, uh, an accountable care organization is an organization that has a wraparound contract that internally is managing population health. OK, so let's go back to the uh, the why, why we need a new approach. So here's an elderly couple, could be uh, our parents, was my parents. And uh, they have multiple chronic diseases. John has heart trouble, kidney trouble, emphysema. Mary has diabetes, she might be a little forgetful. They're taking 22 medicines between them. I have to have a stronger spring so I can talk more actively. <laughs> and um, as often happens, they have adult children, but they don't live in the same town. So time passes, and John's knees bothering him, he goes for an operation. So what happens too often today? There's not perfect communication. John forgets to mention heart medicine. He winds up in the ICU. Meanwhile, Mary's at home at lo- alone. Turns out she's more forgetful than people thought. Not taking her medicines. Diabetes goes out of control. She winds up in the emergency room. He's in the ICU. And now neither of them can go home. Right. So we've had not good outcomes. Not good experience of care. And of course all of these things add to the cost of taking care of John and Mary. So just take about 10 seconds and think what, what could have been done different? What would have been Helpful from a system point of view for the John and Mary's in this situation. Okay, here's a couple of thoughts, and I'm sure people in the audience could add more. So first of all, when I created this little case vignette and I showed it to my orthopedic colleagues, they said, gee, you know, older patients with multiple chronic diseases don't do as well with knee replacements. So maybe he shouldn't have had the operation in the first place. And this you'll recognize as the principle behind shared decision making. So was his admission coordinated with outpatient world and inpatient world? Did people think about his family situation and marry? So as I said, the results were the opposite of what we're aiming for. So as I said, the needs of our patients have changed, but the system has not. So 100 years ago, when people really had, uh, their major events were acute events, right? You break your leg, you go to the doctor, it gets fixed, you pay them for fixing your leg, And that's the fee-for-service world, right? Around uh, procedures, office visits, things that you can bill for uh, one at a time. Uh, This is supposed to represent a diabetic checking their blood sugar. So nowadays, our patients are living longer, they're developing multiple chronic diseases, and that is not a situation that fee-for-service handles well. And you'll recognize our strategy three puzzle pieces, right? Population, health, uh, value-based contracting, and payment reform. Why? Because to handle the chronic diseases, we need different activities, and they're not necessarily billable, right? The care coordination, the teaching of self-management, addressing social issues and such. And they're so important that uh, we still have to provide them, but um, they're not uh, necessarily billable. And you can see this in some of CMS's activities. They're actually trying to create billable codes for care coordination, yearly visits, and things like that. Uh, But this is on top of this fee-for-service platform, and it's sort of patchwork. And and another thing that's really important, and I'll come back to later in the talk, is that these needs are not disease-specific. So of course, we have to take care of the diabetes the best way, and heart failure the best way, et cetera. But there are these other needs which cut across chronic diseases. So uh, this slide is uh, made to represent uh, the population of Johns and Marys, frail elderly couples in the, in the community, and, and their journey through the health system. So you have them at home, they could be going to a doctor's office, they could be getting ambulatory surgery, they might need to be admitted through emergency room. And now in our IHI uh, framework, where we're looking at the total population cost and our ACO relationships reflect responsibility for total population cost, We have to manage the whole chain of events, right? So in fee-for-service world, the office visit, bill for the office visit, get a fee, right? As long as you cover your costs, great. Same for the diagnostic imaging, same for urgent care, same for emergency room hospitals, same for nursing homes. All these independent actors trying to raise their revenue, and what do you get? More expense and less coordination. And this is actually one of the points that Berwick makes in the Triple Aim article. What we're trying to do is say, look at this whole path, and what's the best thing for the patients? So ironically, in some ways, it's more patient-centered, because we have to look from the patient's view. So for example, if we had community health workers out there monitoring John and Mary, they might have said, gee, Mary is going to need some help. Let's proactively go out and get her help or get her respite or such, that's one example. Okay, so addressing the needs of the high-complexity patients. So you're going to see a lot of pyramids in this presentation. Here's the first one. The top 5% of the patients account for half of the costs of the medical care. And it's truly amazing. I'll show you some data, but it's, it's kind of hard to get your head around. But that, those 5%, 1 in 20 patients, count for half our costs. And as I mentioned before, what are the things that they need? They need care plans. They need attention to transitions of care they often have behavioral health issues, depression, uh, Alzheimer's disease, et cetera, anxiety, and they often have chronic pain issues which go unrecognized. So we really have to look at all these issues across the whole person. Okay, so here's some actual data from our ACO contracts. So uh, Pioneer is our CMS, uh, accountable care organization, and uh, we have about 45,000 patients, so 5% is 2200. Per patient per year, $66,000 in the top 5%. Now Medicare patients have more problems and they have a longer uh, tail, so they account for about 43% of our total spend, the amount that gets billed to Medicare for those patients. So now look at the commercial payers. So Anthem Blue Cross, we also have an ACO relationship with, and Harvard Pilgrim. And it just always amazes me how it's almost exactly 50%, just like it says in the literature. This is our actual uh, data. Okay, so what are we going to do about this? Let's talk about, first of all, these macro levels. So I'm introducing here a diagram I'm going to come back and forth to. The outer circle is the community and environment. Of course, the person, each person, is embedded within that. And there's product and benefit designs, care delivery network, population health management, and patient level care activities. Um, there's a whole area that I'm just going to mention because it's incredibly important, but it would deserve an hour on its own. And that's actually engagement, patient engagement and such. Uh, so very important topic, You know, non-financial means, financial means, et cetera. Uh, just to acknowledge that, but I want to concentrate really on the population health management strategy. Okay, so number one is make use of the community. So communities have needs, and they have resources. In fact, we have to do community health needs assessments as hospitals. And then now, under the Affordable Care Act, we have to make plans to address those needs. And there's a department within my area, community health uh, and and engagement, uh, led by Dr. Sally Craft, that works and manages this process. Uh, But the community also has resources that we hope to tap into, and in some cases, help expand. So what could that be? So first of all, why is that important? I'm to, I mentioned population health earlier. Uh, this is the pie. And half of the costs, half of the variation in health outcomes, rather, are due to behaviors, activity, substance use, smoking, etc. Some is biological. About 20% is the built environment. And the part that we, as a nation spend three trillion dollars a year on is this part up here. So I think we have to get out and work on all these other parts too. <clears throat> so what might that look like? So some some sample uh, efforts again uh, overlaid on that population uh, pyramid, all right so for the healthy vaccinations, prevention, exercise wellness, people with chronic conditions or rising risk, we could have community health workers, peer mentoring, peer support. For the highest needs patients, maybe things like uh, parish nursing. So Lyme has a program that we'd like to scale out and replicate in other places too. <clears throat> okay, other, other levers. Let's talk a little bit about um, insurance products and insurance benefits and benefit designs. And every payer has these. Um, CMS has them, Medicaid, as well as Of course, the commercial insurance, which is where you kind of think of this more automatically. So, what's involved there? Well, from our point of view, there are quality expectations, there are cost targets. That's that's in our ACO contracts, Um, and there's effects of the benefit design. So, let me give you an example um, related to CMS. So, as I mentioned, the contracted targets are accountability, and the implications of benefit design. So, in Medicare, many of you know, if the patient uh, Needs skilled nursing, they have this three-day rule. They have to be in the hospital three days before they can qualify for skilled nursing. And a lot of times, patients come in and, they, and we have the uh, social admissions because they're not safe to go home, but they don't have really big, clear medical problems, so we have to figure out how to keep them in the hospital three days. So that's a, that's a Medicare benefit design, right? On the Pioneer program, there's a waiver for that. So we operate under a waiver of the three-day rule and we can send patients directly to nursing homes from emergency room without having to admit them. Again, thinking about that patient journey, it helps us uh, manage that uh, better for the patients where it's imp- appropriate to send them right to a nursing home. An important factor in a lot of these discussions is where do self-insured uh, employers fit in um, because there are issues there like um, being a free, free rider, right? They say, well, you can do all this ACO stuff and patient-centered medical homes, that's great, Um, And will benefit because you treat all your patients the same and we have to get them in uh, too So we have to work in that way. We can work closely with insurance uh, companies or closer with insurance companies to help get the self-employed patients involved Okay, other macro levers How about our network? What does that mean for us and the construction of the network? So it's a couple of things right one of them is do we have the right? pieces in place, again remember that patient journey slide and do we have them in the right places to cover our population? And that can really do a lot for us so if you have a uh, network that's well integrated we can coordinate care better, right? For example, do the electronic health records talk to each other? Uh, does an organization fill a gap in care? So one example, people sometimes ask why do we do some work with CVS, you know, that big for-profit company? Well. The CVS Minute Clinics in New Hampshire are connected to our EPIC EDH. A patient is seen in the Minute Clinic, a note goes into EDH and an alert. Your patient was seen on Saturday for a sore throat. We did a strep test that was negative. We don't have to duplicate the test. We don't have to give antibiotics on Monday. Things like that. So the network construction and the network interactions actually give us an opportunity to improve quality and lower the cost. Of course, uh, another thing is the contracted prices. We can make things more affordable, and we've done that through our Elevate Health insurance product with uh, Harvard Pilgrim, um, which has worked out very well. And that's a narrow network pro- uh, prod- pro- product. Pardon me. One subtle advantage by having a narrower network, you get more patients concentrated in each institution, and that means each institution has more incentive to improve their care and uh, in practical terms it's easier because your logistics are better with the concentration <clears throat> so uh, in those terms let me give you a brief case study and this is preliminary numbers as Bob mentioned this is our DHWPR employees and dependents and we're self-insured you can think of that by the way as we're capitating ourselves capitated payments for our employed population and we changed, for, I first looked at this, so this is a graph of people going out of network the people who are leaving to go to Boston or out of network hospitals in New Hampshire and when I looked at this I said, wow, something's wrong with the data <laughs> you know, how could this, what happened here, and then the team and I realized this is when our benefits change so we were going from about two to three million dollars a month of leakage out of the um, Elevate Health Network in 2014, one one we had the new plan that about 85% of employees and family are in. Leakage is down to a million dollars a month. So, big difference financially and ability to coordinate again. Um, and we didn't see this in the other programs. So, I've run the same uh, diagram for Anthem Blue Cross and other ACOs. So, mark, marked effect. Okay. So, the last two pieces, which I'm going to go into more detail in. <laughs> and the next section of the talk, is uh, related to the actual care delivery and how we manage that delivery. And that's really uh, the work of the uh, organization internally. So four key elements, and I've discussed this, uh, people have seen me me talk before, I'll often say, here we are at the leadership of the ACO and here are the clinicians seeing the patients, the feet on the street, and how do we connect what we've negotiated for and what we're providing with the activities at the patient level. And there's four, four parts. It's actually similar to a lot of businesses, but it, I think it helps us to think about that. First is actual information. Who are the top 5% neediest patients, for example? What do they need? What are they doing? Second is actually the um, uh, clinical operations and care delivery. So by that I mean things like When we discharge patients, we have outpatient care managers in the hospital. They talk to the care managers in the community, in our community group practices or such, and that helps make the transition, right? So that's the clinical operations, and after working on this for years, we have a very low readmission rate, almost benchmarking the country, actually. The latest figures are so good, I I asked the uh, data analysts to to rerun them and double-check. Uh, Why? Because we have end-to-end clinical operations that prevent readmissions. So Mary Hitchcock Hospital and Cheshire Hospital were the only two hospitals in New Hampshire that did not get a penalty from CMS for their readmission rates, so this works. Leadership and communication, right? How do we get what's up here down to the uh, feet on the street? This was one of the important reasons behind establishing primary care service lines, so not only to go across locations. But now that primary care service line reports up into population health management. So when we discuss what uh, needs to be done, we can make plans that go all the way to the doctors, seeing the patients in primary care. And similarly, they can say, but look, we need such and such, and we can help mobilize those resources. And lastly is aligned incentives. And this relates to the um, physician compensation changes that we're putting in, where there'll be bonuses for quality access and patient uh, satisfaction, patient experience of care. So we can get those four things aligned, we'll connect the top to the bottom. So let's go into a little more detail actual information. This is probably the longest part of the presentation so bear, bear with me a little bit. The key tactic here is figuring out the subpopulations and their needs and that would drive a clinical model which individualizes the care and lets us take care or identify process issues, common cause variation sometimes and special cause variation uh, within the system. I'll give you some examples. So uh, there's the pyramid again. right? And the table um, in gray is, is a, a way to represent the clinical model. We can use that to connect to the outside world. And here's an example. So we've actually constructed this table. It has about 40 rows. These are all those cross-cutting things that, that people need. and um, and we can modulate each row by the intensity uh, needed for a given patient. So, for example, self-management teaching. Great, everybody needs that. Very high. We, we took that list of 40 and prioritized because there's too many things to work on once. But here's some examples, right? So we prioritize that one pretty high. I mentioned about the uh, readmissions and follow-up, right? So somebody who, like a 25-year-old man who comes in and has appendicitis, uncomplicated, goes home in less than 24 hours, they don't need quite as much follow-up as somebody like the Johns or Marys of the world going home and needing help at home and transitions and twenty two medicines reconciled uh, advanced care planning um, you may know there 's a large uh, community based and also dh sponsored effort led by Sandy Burstein from Nashua of getting community discussions on honoring care decisions, and they have that divided up again into different intensities etc and again. These are not the disease-specific things. These are the cross-cutting things that help us support patients with chronic disease and multiple chronic diseases. So this graph, uh, and I think some some of you may have seen me talk before I've used this before, um, but I think it's still very helpful to think about. Um, It's a study of variation. Uh, So here at the home of the Dartless atlas, we have to talk about variation. That's so clearly important. But this is on uh, glucose control. So there's a uh, quality measure, uh, hemoglobin A1C greater than 9%, and uh, lower is better, right? So you'll see two bars. Here's a national Medicare HMO average. You can get that from the National uh, Committee on Quality Assurance, NCQA. You can get that's publicly available. Uh, here's a Dartmouth uh, average. Uh, we have a ways to go. And it varies almost two to one. There's a location that has 22% and a location that has 44%, low being better. And again, not a blame uh, issue, potentially a system issue, a patient issue, practice issues. Well, we should get to the cause, root cause of that and improve things. Here's a different type of variation. And our colleagues in the emergency room um, have questions about the different definitions about emergency room visits. This is using a standard uh, definition from a New York University. And they divide things up from the things that you know, are clearly emergent, couldn't have been prevented, had to go to the emergency room, versus the most minor things that didn't have to go to the emergency room or could have been prevented, could have been seen in primary care. So that's the total, that's the blue bar, and here's the percent that are truly not avoidable, and that's a big delta. Uh, and by the way, I couldn't help, under fee-for-service, great, right? More visits, more charges, etc. But when we're responsible for the total cost of care, not so good. Also, maybe we can improve patients' experience, urgent care, convenience clinics, more access in primary care, et cetera. So, let's combine the two things. So we have the population segmentation kind of proactively saying here are things that you should be doing for these different parts of the population, and that's actionable information, right? Then that goes out to the uh, primary care uh, system, and I'm you know, mentioning primary care a lot, but this could apply also to uh, cardiology, Alan Kono's projects and, and other uh, specialties that follow panels of patients and specialists as well to some degree. We're looking and seeing how well that's operating. We're also looking back to see the variation in care like the diabetes example. So we can drive value by building and improving processes at a system level, decrease of emergency room use, addressing variation of care within the system so we get value in, in both directions, the so proactive and also looking back and working on the variation. Okay, so stick with me. This is, I I'm, I'm think uh, we're getting there. That was the longest section. So transforming care. So I was uh, in internal medicine and I saw patients full-time for a dozen years, 20 years in various venues one way or another. Uh, and my office was organized, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't project very well, but it's, there's a gray bar with physician, medical assistant, physician, medical assistant, physician, medical assistant. Five docs, we tend to our own MA. Of course, that's the fee-for-service strategy, right? See the patients as quick as possible, turn the rooms over. I had three exam rooms, and, and bill. Doesn't work as well in the chronic uh, care world, right? So what's happening across the country, um, and people talk about this as practice transformation, patient-centered medical home, it's moving towards this team model with the physicians and nurses and uh, nurse practitioners and other clinicians, certified medical assistants, and uh, health coaches, et cetera, forming a team. And the reason that helps us right, is that we can delegate some of this work. Helps us as physicians, I'm speaking, and and nurses, so that things that clerical uh, workers can do or things that a health coach, or a medical assistant can do, are done by them. And some of these are those non-billable activities, right? <clears throat> Conversely, we manage up by exception. So the idea, and you've probably heard this, <clears throat> the idea of people operating at the top of their license, right? One implication of that is we have to standardize a lot of things, right? Because you can't really delegate, or you can't delegate efficiently unless the roles are clear. So even 25 years ago, when I was in practice. I told my nurse, okay, it's flu, flu shot season, anybody who qualifies for a flu shot, just give them a flu shot, write a note in the record, don't, you don't have to bother me. So that's an example of a simple system and a simple delegation, and we need to, to do that here, and we're working on those processes uh, here as well. So things like the knowledge mat, which tries to give us a standardized way of looking at high blood pressure or cholesterol, help drive uh, that ability to delegate to your team. OK, so let's do a, a brief case study. And now, now I'm using the patient pyramid instead of the team pyramid. So this will be for our em, enrollees. And I've made the numbers kind of round to, to keep the arithmetic simple. But we have over 12,000 uh, DHWP and family and employees. And the top 5% would be about 600 people. And this little memory test, what percent of costs do they account? Yeah. loud, right? Yes, I heard the answer. 51.3%. It's remarkable, isn't it? All right, that's really remarkable, because that's like $40 million divided by 600. So these are, are uh, patients, from patient point of view, that we're, we have, we're spending $70,000 per year per patient. That's a lot, right? So we've assigned four care coordinators uh, uh, to this patient, and this has been uh, to this population this has been uh, in action since um, late spring. I would say um, And just in round numbers again cost about three hundred thousand dollars um <clears throat> I have those four people working on the on the care uh, the top five percent Right now have 500 admissions per year almost every one of them gets admitted at least once right if we can present Prevent a hundred of those we'd save about two million dollars So that's one example of using this um, patient segmentation, and addressing a need, and um, getting a, a result. And we're tracking that right now to see what difference those care managers are making. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot the punchline. <laughs> right. So if we make this work, right? improved health outcomes, fewer admissions, better experience, nobody likes to be in the hospital, except us, of course, and uh, lower costs. Right? OK, leadership, communication, change management. So I, I mentioned kind of this level and this level. But you all know there's multiple levels in a complex organization. And we have to have leadership at all those levels, from the team level, through the community group practices, uh, through, through uh, the leadership uh, levels. So um, and, and that goes both ways. I have told the primary care service line, now I work for you. right? Are you getting what you need? Can I uh, argue for more resources than what you need? Um, And then, uh, of course, you have to balance between central standardization and regional customization. So we don't want to standardize to 100 percent, but can we do 80-20? That would be great, right? The 20 percent, we do the local uh, needs and understanding uh, and things like that. And lastly, uh, funding. I've mentioned this a couple of times. So um, one of our jobs now is to obtain the contracts that reflect the value we're generating, right? And that lets us pay for the uh, teams and the non-billable work, et cetera. And then aligning our internal incentives, again, from that funding. um, And my goal is actually that as we start getting uh, uh, risk-based payments from the insurers, that we can invest some of that in ourselves. So in terms of investing in the bonus system, investing in uh, the tools that that we need. So again, it's taking the, the dollars reorienting it through our strategy and um, improving our situation and our funding so again just to review four macro levels levers: Uh, community health needs and resources the network construction the product benefit and design and the activities of taking care of the patients and watching how we take care of the patients and then the internal success measures in a little more detail and this was actually from my MHCDS uh, uh, practical. This is the end of the presentation that uh, we gave there. So, the actionable information, which we're doing pretty well with, we have registries, we have variation data, we're building up data and analytic systems. Uh, and at each practice, working through some standardization, the team model, the transformation, the communications and processes that go end to end, and aligned funding. So, what will it mean for you? I've described a lot of this from a primary care point of view. But I think, in general, working in teams and being a part of a medical neighborhood uh, and partnering with specialists, a lot different from the 80s and 90s where there were gatekeeper models. I remember having to fill out referral forms and such. Um, partnering the right time in the patient's care to send people to specialists, not too late, not too early, right? Uh, uh, mechanisms like e-consults, e-referral system, uh, I think are going to be very helpful with that. Uh, specialty care. For those who follow a panel of patients, I mentioned uh, the, uh, the CHF clinic, This similar principles to, to primary care. Those who are doing procedures are, uh, the, the key thing is only do it appropriately. And that's built into the uh, genetics almost here at Dartmouth, right? So appropriate from medical point of view, appropriate from a shared decision-making point of view, uh, so that on a population level, you don't have too many episodes. And of course, each episode is High quality, lowest cost, fewest bad outcomes, <coughs> positive outcomes. Uh, so, will this work? Uh, so, I can speak from the United Healthcare uh, uh, point of view from my old uh, work, and this has been published in a, in a white paper that uh, is available on the web. Um, so, the primary care, uh, sorry, patient centered medical home experience there was fairly large, actually about the same size as our primary care network here in New Hampshire. And after uh, three years, The system was saving 6% on total costs, right? Um, and that was a net. So they had actually 7.2% savings, and about 1% of the savings was driven back into care management fees and such. So 6% savings on the whole population. Anthem Blue Cross has been at this not quite as long, um, and they're talking now that they're seeing 3% total population savings uh, as early results. Um, The Pioneer ACOs as a whole were uh, certified, and I say as a whole for a reason, (laughs) um, by an independent auditor. Uh, So under the ACA, the CMMI pilot projects, if they are certified to be generating savings, can become more permanent. So that audit uh, process showed uh, the 32 systems saving $384 million dollars the first couple of years. Dartmouth was a saver each of the first uh, years. We even saved this year. That's different from the benchmarking that they use in our contract, unfortunately. So you may have seen the results were just released. And we actually uh, lost money against the CMS target, despite that we saved more than a percent against a reference population. And we're having some discussions with CMS about that. But in any case, as a whole, uh, it seems to be working. So I think that the better processes and systems will improve uh, our work life as well, Um, not only improving things for our patients, but I think will improve for our staff. Uh, So I've left um, a bibliography uh, for you with these uh, various uh, studies that I've mentioned, and that's the end of my prepared talks. I'd be happy to have uh, some questions and answers.
0: Comment about the old 80s and 90s sort of HMO gatekeeping function. And clearly, we sort of moved very very strongly away from that. Right? We're sort of trying to do all this other stuff. But it seems like, in the end, if we don't get to some point where we can have some rational use of resources work, this is going to continue to be a problem. Well, I was just going to ask you to speculate on, like, how, how do we find the sweet spot between doing
1: no care management on, on that level? versus the, that, that sort of old model Yeah, so uh, just to repeat for the folks outside the room, so the question was, uh, where are we going? Uh, let me paraphrase, what's different now, right, compared to the 80s and 90s when capitation was tried out, and is there a better way to do it, I guess? So um, one thing to keep in mind was that capitated payments in the 80s and 90s actually did lower costs. And there's a macro graph some people may, may have seen that shows total uh, spending rate change, not the total spending, but the rate change went down and dipped. The lowest was around 1995, I think, and then has come back up some, may have dipped again. And the problem with the old capitation systems was uh, two things. They didn't have clear outcome quality signals, and they didn't risk adjust sufficiently. So the the money has to follow the risk. So one of my jobs when I was in Rochester and seeing patients, I was also on the finance committee of an independent practice association, 3,200 doctors, capitated for physician expense, and risk adjustment was not really part of the discussion that much. But every year, we had to ask for more and more money, and the insurance company said, what's going on? So we looked at our population, and our our percent of diabetics had tripled (laughs) over 10 years. So that's the kind of thing. So number one, the money has to follow the risk. And number two, the quality measures and, that came out of that era were these HEDIS measures, which are underuse process measures. And that was because people didn't want care to be skimped, right? You're getting capitated. You're not going to give the care. You're going to make more money. And so they said, are you doing enough mammograms? Are you doing enough blood tests for diabetes? All these process measures. And um, that's... Not, I think, not a strong enough uh, outcome. So we're starting to build better outcomes. We are far from there, but things like the readmission rate and other things that are indications of patient uh, care and patient experience as well. Great. Right. Yes, please.
0: So uh, whenever I hear these
1: presentations, I'm always struck by a disconnect between the amount of money we're talking about, which is huge, and the percent improvement, which looks to me relatively small. I mean, you have three percent decrease
0: and six percent. Seems to me a revolution would be a twenty or thirty percent decrease. Yeah. Is there anything revolutionary coming in terms of all this, or is this going to continue to be these small things? Again, the dollars are big. I'm not saying we shouldn't yeah. do it, but I don't see this as a revolution.
1: Yes. So uh, the question is, uh, we're playing small ball, right? Three percent, six percent, not not revolutionary. Um, so uh, what I'm so let me give a two-part answer. So what I'm hoping for, if we can get six percent savings out of our system, remember. We've been going up at, at in the past at 5 to 6% a year. If we can start going down, that's a big delta. And over time, that translates into huge amounts of money across the country. But truly revolutionary, can we get 20%, 30%? I think there's, that's going to require some real structural changes. Um, so one thing that we're uh, about to pilot um, with our employee population and um, some of our ACO patients is... Uh, Imagine care digital digital health, which is remote sensing, um, and we have uh, high hopes for that. We'll we'll see how it goes. So Geisinger, a well managed system, uh, installed remote sensing and decreased their total costs eleven percent based on compared to their usual good care management. So that was pretty good. Um, and uh, this is a, a briefly uh, not remote sensing like that goes to your office and then you have two hundred blood pressures to review. It's actually the data goes into a machine learning system. Microsoft is actually in town helping us program that now. The machine learning system then uh, talks to a 24-7 call center and operates along those uh, protocols. You won't even be bothered unless the patient isn't doing well. And then it will appear in the record and will make appointments and such. So it should decrease the clinic work and be better for the patient. So that, I think, has significant opportunities uh, so more to come on that uh, will be rolled out late this uh, fall. Um, great, great. Tim. Rob,
0: um, uh, very interesting talk. It's very interesting to hear about retooling the medical care system. But how do we retool populations and individuals' expectations for health care? I hear all the time in my clinic, yeah, we're spending too much money. The healthcare industry needs to spend less. But when it comes to my dad's cancer care, spare nothing. And I never hear anyone saying, "Society can't afford fourth-line chemotherapy for me." So thank you, but no. How do we change that? Because I think with the fundamental demand not changing, I can't see any kind of a revolution around.
1: Yeah. So um, just to make sure everybody heard that. Dr. Davis, from uh, our colleague from oncology, is expli- explaining that. Uh, how do we change patient expectations because people are still expecting the best the most, et cetera um, and that 's really important obviously to, to deal with so um, there 's some things that are incremental. Uh, I think we definitely have to have patient education, patient engagement I mentioned we um, have to show it what people what 's in it for them right so as we change in, in primary care, the difference might be. Boy, I'm used to seeing my doctor all the time, right? And, but now you're telling me to see a nurse practitioner or, or such. Uh, so that might be a, a cultural difference that we have to overcome. But I think as people see the benefits, they will adapt to the system. And uh, Iora uh, Health, so Dartmouth Connect practice, a primary care practice uh, in downtown Hanover, which uses health coaches, uh, the patients are so delighted <laughs> with how that's working out that they're happy. They said don't don't change that. They have the highest patient experience uh, as possible. The other part is that you you don't have to win with every patient in front of you, right? So there's going to be a distribution of patient attitudes and expectations, and you know, some people, again, our principle is shared decision making and informed consent such, and there are going to be some people who insist on everything. And there are going to be some people who say, what are our alternatives? So maybe uh, Palliative care, um, and as we have that program further uh, installed with the work of David Kara uh, coming here, I think we'll be able to present high-value alternatives, and that will give people other things that work. Uh, I just wanted to make sure if there are any questions from the people on, online. Can we tell We're here? Sorry. Okay, I don't see anything offhand. I think there's a question back and then to the front. Yeah.
0: The population that Dartmouth serves is, is much wider than the, the local Upper Valley. Um, how do you build out some of this to rural small practices, um, some of which, like mine, are only seven miles away um, and uh, um, in an affordable fashion?
1: Right. So, how do we get to rural practices? How do we get to inner city Manchester, for that matter, right? So uh, the communication lines, the in- actionable information, um, things like telehealth that we're expanding also rapidly, work, which will work well with the uh, remote sensing, um, and communication. So uh, not easy, um, but there are probably 30 other rural states in our situation. Upstate New York, you know, think of New York as rural, but upstate it's pretty, pretty rural. So a uh, challenge, but not, not insurmountable. I think there's one, one down here.
2: Yeah. Um, in the first two years of being a Pioneer CEO, you said that we generated shared savings, but in the third year, we didn't generate enough to receive savings. I'm curious if you think the efforts just plateaued and that you weren't generating enough money based on the amount of work that you were doing, or if you think that the benchmarking was inaccurate. You said that you have an issue with CMS. you could elaborate on that?
1: Sure. The question was uh, related to the uh, progress in the Pioneer Shared Savings uh, Program um, the CMS ACO and our performance. So let me be a little careful with my language. So uh, the actual money coming to us from the shared savings with uh, Medicare uh, was a positive $1 million the first year, minus $1.4 the second year, and minus our share is minus two point three. So we have to write a check at the end of this month for the $1.4 and $2.3, 3700000 million back to the government. When we look at our performance against what they call a reference population. Each year, we've generated savings, but they take that rep- rep- reference population and they actuarially generate a target, which is even lower. So it wasn't good enough. As I said, we it was 2.7 percent decline in the reference population, 3.9 here, and 4.4 for their actuarially determined target. So uh, not good enough. Uh, so that's where we take issues, and there's some, a lot of technical issues with their actuarial calculation. Uh, now, they've listened to some of this, and the next-gen ACO has a different method. It gives us a calculated per member per month at the beginning. That benchmark, that actuarial target, actually is recalculated every quarter. It's a moving target. At one point, it was 14% below, which no system can change 14% in one year. Uh, except maybe McAllen, Texas. I'll get back to that.
2: <laughs>
1: so anyway, so, so uh, that's kind of the problems we have. And we're looking very carefully at uh, the next, next-gen model. We have to make a decision on, on this year's pioneer and pioneer going forward in the next few weeks. So we're thinking hard about whether we should or shouldn't continue. Um, so I mentioned McAllen, Texas. So Jim Weinstein uh, likes to use this analogy. So McAllen, you know, was where Atul Gawanda wrote the article about... Uh, comparing them to El Paso of like 2009 and, and how their utilization was off the roof, right? Um, and he wrote a recent follow-up article last May called Overkill. Uh, so a few of these uh, Medicare Shared Savings ACOs had got involved there and sure enough, they knocked down their costs. They knocked down so much that one physician group each doc was taking in $800,000 bonus checks each doc <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> we were stunned, too. So Jim's analogy, when we talk with CMS, goes like this. Well, if you're running a 12-minute mile, or maybe in McAllen you're running an 18-minute mile, and you want to take off 10 or 20%, you want to go down three minutes, pretty easy. <laughs> if you're in uh, running a five-minute mile, you want to go down to a one-minute mile, just 20. That's pretty hard. <laughs> so environments utilization has consistently run 30% below national average. right? So we're already starting at a lower point. Um, so it's hard to get down to that four-minute mile. I think we're going to do it. And so the question of what's revolutionary, that's why it's hard. We have to now do more revolutionary things than evolutionary. And this is a discussion we've had with CMS, which is, look, you, you can't reward at the same rate somebody who starts up here and gets to here versus somebody who starts here and gets a little better. And we've proposed that they graduate that, right, so that you keep more savings if you're down towards the four-minute mile. Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell where we're trying to go with that.
0: Dr. Green, we have an email uh, question let's see, from the Internet. I think one
1: in the back and then, then on the side.
0: Thank you for the presentation. That was excellent. Um, I know the, the focus has mostly been on population or patient management, um, you know, the ultimate goal being improved population health. And, and I'm wondering if you're partnering or what work you're doing with other Um, groups in the community, non-governmental organizations, because there's a lot of talk and work going on about this particular topic, population health, um, outside of the the healthcare realm. I wonder if you can comment on that.
1: Right. So the question is, what what are we actually doing with the community? So uh, there's an inside out and an outside in. Uh, So inside out, I mentioned we do have uh, community health needs assessments, and we're working with um, four other hospitals in the upper Connecticut River Valley. To converge those and come up with a coherent plan and pick things that are common to our communities. So that's kind of the inside out. Um, the outside in is that, as you mentioned, there are community resources. So we're striking up, uh, we're trying to work out a relationship between uh, Easter seals, for example. It turns out that the Easter seals of New Hampshire is one of the biggest ones in the country that cover New Hampshire, Maine, and I believe Vermont. So they can be a clearinghouse for all the social services. Um, on a more granular level, there's, I mentioned that uh, Dennis McCullough's project with parish nursing. There's uh, community health workers in, um, uh, in Lebanon that we're trying to reach out to to build up the system. We're a little limited this year because having had uh, poor financial performance in fiscal 15, we don't have as much resources to invest. Um, but those to give you a flavor of the things we're, we're trying to establish. The other part is that uh, Jose, Dr. Jose Montero, who used to work as the medical director for the Department of Health and Human Services, after 15 years there, I think he was ready for something different. And he's now the vice president for population health at Cheshire Keene. Uh, so between his, pop, his public health connections and, and knowledge, we're helping, hoping to replicate some of the work that they've done there. So um, if you have a chance to look at Healthy Monadnock 2020, which is the civic uh, health improvement project down in the Keene area, and uh, what's great is they've created kind of a civic voice or civic mandate because they have government officials and uh, uh, schools and uh, non-government charitable organizations all in the health system all come together on a steering committee for the community health. And they publish regular statistics on weight and uh, healthy uh, activities, et cetera. So can we duplicate that in other cities? That's one of the things I've asked uh, Jose to take a look at, working with our Department of Community Health. Oh, great, thank you for asking. Do- Dr. Green, uh, Dr. Green. I think I think, next one. Yeah. Thank you for a very interesting presentation.
2: It certainly focuses and a lot of attention paid to how can we forecast out of the system. That can can improve our position. You know, there's another perspective too that says you don't save your way to prosperity. And so the the equivalent side of the equation is the revenue. And I'm kind of curious about is that the opportunity for the revolution uh, that our colleague asked about over here? Because certainly, you know, when I look at the pie chart, there's the 50% on lifestyle things that we don't get paid for. And so a lot of what we're doing here is shifting around costs and asking people to do increased RVUs um, in order to get money in so that we can do all these things we don't get paid for. Yep, yep. You know, and, and the RVU issue is a challenge, I think, for clinicians, um, leads and certainly aids to out and certainly aids to turnover, and one could already turnover in the hospital as a whole. So I think that has to be a concern uh, that must be addressed. So, so it would be interesting to look at the revenue side of the equation, and say, you know, what are the innovative ways we can go about getting paid for the work we do to meet the goals of population care? But like even the little thing of getting paid for it, discussing advanced directives that has come out through Medicare you know, there's scope for for movement there, and I'm wondering
1: what we're doing on that side. Well, I'm really glad you asked about that. So the question was, what are we doing in terms of revenues and how do we reconcile going for more RVUs um, with the things I've been talking about with population? and um, the concentration on taking cost stab. what else can we do? I, there's probably at least four answers. <laughs> so, one part, and let me see if I can get these. So, one part is uh, moving to capitation. So, in capitation, you're literally paid per member per month. So, a check comes in at the beginning of the month. Um, and one of the things in the next gen ACO model is that not this year, but in 2017, the CMS is Says they'll have in place the ways to do that, right? So for those forty-five thousand patients, we're spending eight thousand dollars. i sorry, eight hundred dollars a month. We'd be getting a check for forty million bucks, right? So now we have that capitation, and the question is, what do we spend off of that? Which is why it's important to have the right number of procedures, etc. And and what's left over is what we keep. So that helps us because if we take costs out of the system, we keep what we what we saved. Um, And that's one of the reasons primary care is so important, because that kind of determines your capacity for the the PM part, so that's the part of payment reform. Um, Another part is I'd like to get to the point where we are recognizing the value that we're generating in positive terms, right, not just cost savings, but we all know this. We're doctors because we improve the function of our patients. And I don't think we get recognized enough for that. So one of the things I've asked Bob McClellan and his team to do, as we work with employees, employers rather, and our group of employees, right, can we measure the functional improvement and get value for that so an employer sees that as more productivity, less absenteeism, less short-term disability, et cetera. So I think that's another, another aspect. Um, it, the last part um, is, Um, especially, uh, I'll draw a little distinction between primary care and specialty care, but it's maybe uh, artificial. I think rather than thinking about RVUs, let's think in terms of access for our patients, because we do want to bring in the patients who have high needs, we want to bring in patients that need procedures and such. We don't want to be saying no, and we want to get those people in. The RVUs will follow, I believe. So in primary care, we're looking for a certain number of uh, a certain amount of access, a certain amount of office visit slots, as well as these non office visit things. I hope that helps. It's a complex topic, and you can see the interrelationship of all those circles when we talk to that. I'm to take uh, one more question on my... because of time. So, sorry. Okay. On the big picture, one of
2: the things that, that I wonder is to what extent do you think that the short term surrogate measures? strongly reflect any long-term. So, for example, on a, on a, on a contract of one year, you had picked up the um, hepatitis cost of
1: 10,000 patients. i I'm sorry, 10,000? 10,
2: 10,000 patients with hepatitis C. Yes, yes. And you were responsible for them for one year. You would spend a long amount of money you
1: will not realize the savings in your system unless they save in your system. Right. 10 point right, right. So the question is long-term versus short-term savings. Um, and, you know, we might have short-term expenses, and we can pick any number of things, colonoscopies, uh, other stuff. Um, so um, this, it's a tough problem, especially with multiple payers and turnover and such. The bad side, good side? patients with multiple chronic disease tend to stay longer in the same system, they don't change physicians, they don't change insurance as often. Um, And I don't have a perfect answer, but we're always looking at a cross-section. And one of the things about the United Healthcare PCMH um, program that was interesting was that if you looked at patients across time, if you looked at cross-sectionally, it saved 2-3%, and if you look across time, As you're saying, the savings increased as the patients' preventive care kicked in, and they got more used to the system and things like that. Um, So we did get savings uh, even in the three-four year time frame. So there's some some hope there. But if you're right, if we had 10,000 hepatitis C patients tomorrow, we'd be in trouble in the short term. Well, I know there are a few more questions. I encourage you to come up and talk to Rob. Rob, thank you for this very important discussion.
2: Thank you. Okay. great.
1: You. Great. Thank
2: you.